Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good day. I'm Bob Shrum, the Warshaw Chair in Practical Politics at USC Dornsife and the Director of the Center for the Political Future. We want to welcome you to this panel on why Biden won. I want to thank Dean Miller for introducing the program today and Jamie Cabler from the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival, with whom we have had a very fruitful partnership over these last few months. Our panelists today in alphabetical order are Cristobal Alex, a senior advisor for the Biden presidential campaign the founding president of the Latino Voter Project, and in 2016, the National Deputy Director of Voter Outreach and Mobilization for Hillary Clinton. The legendary James Carville, whom I have known since 1984, and whom most of you know because you see him on television. He was the architect of Bill Clinton's 1992 victory. He's authored over 11 books about his career in politics, campaigning, and elections, and he and I worked together in a bunch of them. Uh, Stephanie Cutter was another old friend and colleague who was deputy campaign manager for the Obama 2012 re-election, founder and partner in Precision Strategies, a strategic consulting group. And this year, she served as the program executive at the extraordinary 2020 Democratic National Convention. Adam McGurney has been the Los Angeles bureau chief of the New York Times since 2010. He was the chief political correspondent for the Times. Uh, from 2002 on, covering the presidential elections of 2004 and 2008. He's one of the greatest political journalists in America. So I'm just going to jump right in with this question, and each of you can address it. From my point of view, the Biden campaign was remarkably disciplined all through the primaries and the general election, remarkably free of any public infighting. Democratic campaigns haven't always been that way. And the party, by the way, was more unified in 2016 than it probably has been in most campaigns. Trump, in my view, was the reason for that. But the question I really want to start with is a larger one. Is it likely that any other Democrats who ran for the nomination could have beaten Donald Trump? James, you want to start? Okay, well, thank you, Bob. And uh, I love uh, uh, USC and uh, nonstop there before, and it's a great thing that you've put together. Uh, Ron Brownstein sort of addressed this. And he thinks maybe not. Uh, I worked on a project. We spent $80 million in 77 counties in mostly rural Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And uh, I think it, it, it worked pretty well. Uh, you know, the, the problem is the, the same problem we had in 16, and it's going to be somewhat the problem going forward, is we all huddled up in the same place. And it, as long as... 18% of the country elects 52 senators, we're going to have to have a candidate that has some relationship with these voters. And, and so I, I, I would defer, Ron thinks it's going to, it would be difficult, and I'm generally very moved by anything that Ron Brownstein writes. So I think Biden might have been the best possible candidate we could have had going into this cycle. Yeah, that's a very astute point you made, and not only unity in the Biden campaign, but, but except for some some people on the far left, there was there was unity everywhere. I mean, there was unity in the outside groups. There was unity with 
you know, that everybody was working on this. And if anybody said anything, they would get smacked down. You know, shut up. We got to we got to get the country back. So I, I, I agree. Amazing unity. This is once in never had in my in my life, but it happened now. And I give Joe Biden a lot of credit. Uh, hey Bob, I think I, I, I you know I thought from the very beginning um, of this campaign that Biden and if anyone disagrees, please tell me that Biden was if not the the only one who could beat Trump was by far the strongest person. And I'm not sure that we would be having this conversation today if the party had nominated uh, Sanders or Warren. I, I'm just being frank about it. Um, I also, and I think that was clear for a whole lot of reasons. He was, he was, I think he was liked more than elites on the East and West Coast in Washington, D.C. ever got. They never understood his connection with people. Um, there is obviously some sexism involved between him and uh, Hillary Clinton, but there was a lot of antagonism to Clinton. He didn't bring the baggage um, to the table that I think she did. And the other point is, you know, I've seen a lot of people criticize Biden for the campaign he won, he ran and talk about him being lucky. And I, I don't buy that. I think that he didn't run a fantastic campaign, but he ran an awfully good campaign and he was very disciplined and he knew when not to respond. And when all the sort of like chattering class, which of course doesn't include anyone in this call, was like, get out of the basement, Joe. Um, he didn't. And I always thought that was the right thing to do. And by the way, I know this isn't the topic of the conversation today, but I think that his not engaging Trump as Trump declines to concede is pretty much in the same camp, but he's smart not to do that, I think. Mm -hmm. So I agree with everything um, that uh, Adam and, and James have said. I have a couple of things to add that just strategically, when you're running against an incumbent president, you want it to be a referendum on the incumbent president. And I think if uh, somebody else became the nominee other than Biden, uh, Trump would have had an easier time making it a real choice. Nothing that he threw at Biden really stuck. You know, Sleepy Joe, the socialist attacks. Now, you know, some would probably argue, and probably rightly so, that the socialist attacks in uh, Miami Day did stick a little bit. Um, but overall, anything that uh, he threw at Biden really never stuck. And I think that's because, um, you know, lots of people knew Biden and knew what he stood for. They were familiar with him. Um, and if you look at, you know, we had lots of great people running for the nomination in 2020, but they were not widely known um, outside of the base of the Democratic Party. Um, and that would have given Trump an open slate to, to define them. Um, and that's not what you want to do in a challenge uh, scenario against a, a, a damaged sitting incumbent where the race should be about him. Stephanie, I want to do a follow-up with you for a minute. Adam referred to the campaign as really good, not fantastic. I want to ask you about something that I thought was fantastic, and that was the convention run under extraordinary circumstances that has now been called, quote, the television event of the year. It seemed to focus on revealing Joe Biden in human terms. Can you tell us a little bit, bit about that process? And then all the panelists, starting with Cristobal, can weigh in on this. How important was the Biden sense of empathy in determining the outcome? Very important. Um, and that was one of our main goals in planning the convention, which was planned right here in this room because everything was remote. The convention that we had would probably not be possible for anybody but Biden 
because his story is so rich uh, and there's so much texture to it. And over a very long storied career, he has collected people who he has shown empathy for. And, you know, it's, it's, we go through this every cycle. And I know that we've talked about this a lot, Bob, that uh, everybody knew Joe Biden, but not a lot of people knew a lot about him. Um, and so the one thing that I wanted to do is use the convention to tell a story about who Joe Biden is. It wasn't very policy heavy. It was really biographical of who he was. He was a man of faith. He was a man of family. Um, you know, he had a strong moral code that he lived by, uh, and he had an enormous amount of empathy. He never lost touch of where he came from. He was very connected to his roots and had enormous empathy on healthcare issues because he had lived it, on workers' issues because he had lived it, on economic issues and poverty because he had lived it. Uh, and that made for an amazing convention, to be honest. How about the roll call? The roll call. So who wants to watch, you know, hours of, <laughs> of a Zoom call with people going around uh, and just saying, you know, the great state of Alabama calls it for Joe Biden. Um, so we had to think of how to make it more interesting. And we knew people were stuck in their homes just like we were. So we brought it out to the country where we decided to really invest in going to every single state and territory and put a challenge to them to say, we want you to represent your state. Show us something interesting. Show us a small business that's impacted by COVID. Show us, um, you know, a historic landmark um, that really represents your state. Show us the people um, that are, are fighting uh, to get our kids back to school. Whatever it may be, we gave a lot of leeway to the state, states to define what that is, and it really was successful. And for people stuck in their homes like we were, um, they got to see the country. Um, and uh, it was fun, and it was entertaining, and it showed the enormous energy across the country for this nomination. So that was one of our most heavily invested uh, segments. And it's always the most popular, but it's usually popular because people are wearing funny hats and things like that. Christopher, you could talk about that, but also the question of, could anybody else but Biden have won this? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I want to also congratulate Stephanie on an amazing convention. Uh, I was just blown away by it. And obviously the roll call was uh, extremely meaningful. And I remembered, uh, I'm from El Paso, Texas, and the roll call that y'all did from my hometown uh, with Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, uh, very meaningful given that we were marking the... Uh, the, the terrible tragedy there where white supremacists drove 10 hours to El Paso uh, using similar language to Donald Trump before gunning down 22 um, immigrants and Latinos in my hometown. And it was very emotional and powerful. And uh, to your question, Bob, I think it connects well with, with, with the uh, point about Joe Biden just being this empathetic character person who, um, you know, that's just who he is as a person. And the reason why you didn't see any disunity in the campaign, you didn't see any drama, you know, in the primary or in the general election. Ultimately, that that's a result of the strong leadership of the campaign. And that starts at the very top with Joe Biden. And there was a feeling no matter what, uh, when we were uh, in the bunker, when we were going through an incredibly tough primary, that we had somebody there that we were all fighting for and pulling for. And he as he said from the beginning, was in this battle for the soul of the nation. And that's, that's what, uh, what powered him through the primary. That was the message from the beginning. It was a message from the end. It's just who he is as a person. I'll tell you a, a personal story. 
um, we were, uh, it was November. And remember, that was a tough time for our campaign in November. And we were up against, you know, over 20 uh, primary opponents. We uh, were um, outgunned, outresourced. Um, and we were, um, you know, we were in a tough time. And we had just left. I was with the vice president, now president-elect. We had just left uh, the East Coast, Delaware, flying to Los Angeles for a very important rally and some very important campaigning in L.A., um, when right after we took off, I had learned or gotten the news that my dad had passed away shortly after takeoff. And I sent a quick note immediately to the trip director to say, Hey, you need to know this. My dad just passed and I'm going to need to, uh, to leave the trip, uh, quickly once we land. I didn't expect this, but from the back of the plane comes running Joe Biden within seconds, grabs me, asks if I'm okay. And then tells the pilot to land the plane, to turn it around in the middle of the most contentious part of the campaign, flying across the country uh, at a do or die moment for the campaign, willing to put it all on the line and stop it so that a lowly staffer like myself could, could spend time with my grieving family. I said, no, sir, we're, we got to go west anyways. Thank you, but we got to get to El Paso. I got to get to El Paso and let's go west. But it just shows what kind of a person he is and how lucky we are to have him as a president. Empathetic is the right word, uh, dignified, courageous, um, and I'm an honor of a lifetime to, to work with him on this campaign. Nobody else, I think, uh, could do what he was able to do in unifying the country and unifying the party as quickly as he did. We never spiked the football, not a single time. If you remember, um, as we came after uh, the March 17 states, after Florida, after Arizona, after Illinois, and the party uh, quickly unified around him, I remember a historic moment now when, um, when Senator Sanders endorsed him on a Zoom like this and the um, graciousness they had towards each other. And what, what Joe Biden said was, you know, to all of those folks who put their heart and soul into the Sanders campaign and into that movement he led, um, you have a home here on this campaign. And that's just the way he is. And that's how we approach this campaign. And that's how he'll approach governing. Let me drill down a little more on what happened, uh, because most of the analysts and the folks who ran prediction sites, along with the pollsters, uh, we're expecting a blue tsunami. Uh, arguably, Biden's victory is historically impressive. Incumbent presidents are not denied second terms unless Carvel's running the campaign. Uh, he recaptured the blue wall states, flipped Arizona and Georgia, and made a real run at North Carolina. But down the ticket, blue did not do as well as people predicted. What happened here that, in the face of a Biden victory, uh, you got the, which the conventional wisdom foresaw, that the Democrats fell short in the House and the Senate. This is um, speculation, but that's what I do. I, from the beginning, thought that the talk about defund the police was awfully damaging. And getting back to Biden's skills as a campaign, campaigner, I think he did a really good job of distancing himself and getting away from that without alienating the left in his party. But I think anyone who has paid attention to American politics since 1980, since Reagan, if not before, should have realized, and I'm not discussing policy here, I'm just talking pure politics, should have realized that talking about defunding the police is exactly what Republicans needed to run against Democrats. Um, and my gut tells me, again, you know, I'm going to see more polling and exit poll data if we trust the exit polls, is that kind of stuff was devastating. The, um, the results on... Tuesday night, the election was a victory for for Biden, but in many ways it was a defeat for the Democratic Party, and it was 
not you know, part of it was because typically the Democratic Party allowed its expectations to be raised so much. But part of it is, yeah, I mean, they didn't, and they made minimal gains in the Senate. We'll see what happens in Georgia. They lost seats in the House. And as everyone on this call knows, most devastatingly, historically, they lost or didn't make any gains in state houses as we come into a reapportionment year. So it's another really tough year for the, for the another tough decade for the Democratic Party. And I think, you know, the Democrats need to sort of resolve the fact, I saw someone write about this this morning, I don't think it was Rob and so on. So if you say something in Washington about defund the police, that is going to affect every single local race in the country. And I think that's what happened this time. James, how do you react to that? Well, I, I just a couple of unanswered questions in my head. First of all, it was a minimum wage to $15 an hour on the ballot in Florida. It got 60%, all right? I think we got 47 and change. In California, I think it's the biggest margin ever that Biden had in California, and it would be more aware of this, but I read somewhere where there were a bunch of ballot proposals, pro uh, propositions on the ballot, and they went down. And I, I think that some people thought we were living in AOC's country when we're still really living in Bill Clinton's country. <laughs> I think people are looking to government to, to do interventions that they think can make their lives better. I don't think that they showed that they were very interested in systemic, radical, you know, transformational change. And I think the country is changing. I think the Democratic Party really reflects the transformation the country is going through. But we, the, the people that want to, you know, the revanchists, or what word you want to use, people want to go back to something, are, are many of them, for a lot of reasons, are just kind of frightened by the level of change not that biden was talking about uh, he, he was magnificent in this but it, it's hard to look at this and and not say and i agree with adam not to say there was some kind of pushback on the idea that we were going to defund the police or we were going to you know abolish ice or, or any of the other things that people come up with that that didn't have a good that did not have a good night last tuesday that, not at all not at all someone else want to come in on this I'm going to largely say the same thing um, as Adam and James, except um, at the presidential level, it was a referendum on Trump, not necessarily for policy issues, but the, the whole aura of Trump. And that didn't translate down ballot. I think that defund the police, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, those types of things were used very strategically by Republicans against Democrats who had won in 18 in Republican districts. Like every, you try to learn something from every election. You also try not to overlearn something from every election. I do think that those policies are problematic if we want to win outside of the coastal areas. Um, and we have to learn also on the racial um, uh, tensions and uh, some of the tragedies that happened. Uh, we need to be more comfortable about talking about those, but talking about them in the right way. They're real. Um, they impact everybody, no matter uh, whether you're white, brown, or black. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we let it get away from us um, with the defund the police issue. The I, I didn't realize this, and, they were, and I think the Republicans are very smart in coming up with this. The political correctness canceling thing, I think that mm -hmm. had a lot of resonance. Cancel culture. Yeah, and I didn't see, I didn't, that was like, where did that come from? But I'm like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, because it goes to elitism. You know, it goes to all this stuff. We should at some point also talk about whether Trump managed to some extent to turn the COVID virus 
to his benefit with his base in the final days. But let's, I didn't mean to cut you off, Chris. I was going to, I think you raised a good point. Let, let's definitely talk about that. I, in terms of the down ballot piece, I mean, one part of it, I think, is a little bit around expectation management, right? We, uh, and speaking as a, 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 as a Democrat and, and, and someone, um, you know, who's been following this for a little bit, I think what we saw in 18, people were expecting that again, this, this wave. And honestly, in 18, we really pushed the boundaries there. And we wanted districts that were very hard districts, you know, across the board. We really, really pushed. And there is going to be a natural uh, ebb and flow and, and, and a little bit of return to center in some of these places. And part of it was that. The other part of it, I think uh, you're right on, on some of these issues is, um, you know, the right wing uh, and Trump are, are very good about trying to create chaos and divisiveness and doing everything that they can um, up and down the ballot, uh, as Stephanie said, to, on their end, to, to not make it a referendum on his failed leadership, right? That, that's, that's what they were trying their hardest to avoid. And they couldn't escape it at the top of the ticket, uh, I think, in large part because of the uh, utter failure with COVID and uh, the terrible loss of life we've seen in this country and, and, and the economy being completely shattered. Uh, and down ballot, it was a little harder uh, to do that. But part of that is just the fact that we had pushed so far into 2018 that we were going to we were going to lose a little bit of ground there. So let's talk about COVID because both of you have just mentioned it. Biden was criticized for staying in his basement. He didn't hold big rallies. I myself thought that was sending a powerful signal that he took the virus seriously. But Adam, you just said you think maybe he turned COVID to his advantage with his base in the final days. Yeah, I mean, I still think Biden handled that correctly. And I think that if he had started doing rallies, it would have been a really bad move politically. We won't even talk about it as a healthcare matter. But I think if, we, if Trump had won, right? Um, and one of my assignments in the paper towards the end of the day was to prepare what we call these holding stories for any eventuality. And one of which was Trump <laughs> winning. One of the things we were exploring, I was writing this with some colleagues, was whether or not we would date that back to when he walked out of the hospital and turned his diagnosis into this kind of victory march and said, we can beat COVID, I beat COVID, don't wear masks, nanny state, excuse the language, all that stuff. And I wonder whether some of that stuff began to resonate with some Americans, not most Americans, but enough Americans to allow him to turn out more supporters than he did last time. Yeah, I myself thought the march out of the hospital and the drive around was going to be tremendously alienating for suburban voters, for a lot of women, uh, for a lot of independents. I just don't. Yes, he energized his base and they turned out in record right. numbers. Donald Trump has the second largest number of votes, popular votes ever cast for president. The largest number obviously belonged to Biden. But how do the rest of you think COVID played into this campaign? I'll just say very briefly, you know, it, <laughs> it, uh, it, it made campaigning quite, quite difficult, to be totally honest with you. I mean, a lot of the communities um, that are part of this core coalition, the Biden coalition, um, are high-touch communities. Uh, and so if we're um, uh, engaging Native American communities in Arizona, if we're talking to, you know, Latinos in, in Miami-Dade or Orlando or, or other communities, they're high-touch communities, and we're unable to do that. But the campaign was very smart and strategic and and being able to use other ways of, of connecting with voters. And um, that, that that worked quite well. Toward the end, we needed to, to, to extend out from that a little bit. And as you can see in the in the record turnout, that worked. But to the COVID point, I got to say, it surely had we not been successful, that would have been uh, blamed. For, for At least part of the blame would have been on this 
uh, approach. But again, it, it, it goes to who Joe Biden is as a person. We're going to run the campaign based on who he is as a person. And he's going to follow the science. He's going to follow the doctors. He's going to be respectful. He's not going to put voters at risk. He's not going to put his staff at risk. He's going to be very thoughtful and careful about this. Um, and that's precisely uh, what the campaign did. And I thought, you know, I was, I was aghast. I remember being at the, at the debate and of course our staff tested masks, careful, distanced, um, and seeing the other team uh, not doing any of those things. It was a little bit jaw dropping to see uh, that approach. And then of course we learned right after that, 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 um, you know, that he had, he had got the virus. And so um it just, again, was a very stark reminder to Americans uh, about the seriousness um, of the virus and the different approaches to, to, to governing. James, was that first debate? Go ahead, say whatever you want, and then I want to ask you a question. Well, I want to make two COVID points here. But, but early in the week, when people in Louisiana just taking this isolated instance, we're talking about how are we faring so much better than the rest of the country. And there was a theory that we weren't a swing state, so we didn't have big crowds gathering. And today, somebody texting, we just had the highest number of infections ever. That's including the post-Mardi Gras numbers. So we are on schedule, and I don't think we're isolated. I think this thing is just going to be awful going forward. And so does every other public health expert. I, I want to criticize Joe Biden just a little bit here in this love fest. He, he appointed his COVID task force or whatever. All right, They're all eminently qualified. There's one person that's not from the coast, and that's the guy from the University of Minnesota Public Health, who's basically a coastal. I mean, they can't find somebody from Utah, but they can't find the head of public health at, at, at the University of Indiana. I mean, they're, they're all going to have the same opinion. I'm not telling that, that the people that are on here are not eminently qualified, but you, you know exactly what they're going to do. And people say that, yes, it's all Johns Hopkins, it's all Harvard. It's all, you know, UCLA, Southern Cal, Stanford, Berkeley. And I, I, I thought that was a, a, I just would be mildly critical that they, I hope they develop an instinct to say, this is going to be a tough time and we've got to get people, you, you know, that been the expertise at the University of Illinois is not significantly less than it is anywhere else. And I, I just think that, and I hope that internally, they, they see this because they're just going to say, ah, it's a bunch of elites telling you what to do and how to lead your life. And we, we can't sing. It's real, but we, 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 we're too enthusiastic about it, I guess is my point. We, it's like, all right, get in there, each piece, goddamn it, round them up. They're all stupid. You do this. And then people don't feel that way. That's not a very effective way to communicate. But I'll make that point and be the first person to issue a, a mild criticism of the incumbent administration. No, <laughs> I think you'll hear other criticisms today, but yeah, let, me try a, let me try a counterfactual on, on all of you. What if in February, Donald Trump had called a press conference and said, there is this virus, it's very dangerous, we're going to try to keep it out of the country, we probably won't succeed, they didn't know about masks then, but I want people to maintain social distance, we're not going to hold rallies, I'm going to call off my rallies for now. I'm going to go to the Oval Office. I'm going to focus on this, and we're going to beat this thing. And every day you will have medical briefings that will come from medical experts like Tony Fauci. And I will be there sometimes, but not other times. What if he'd taken it seriously and acted as if the election was in November and not April? Would we be holding a different conference today? It's possible. Go ahead. 
I was going to say, and I'm not a, I'm not a health professional, obviously. Um, I think we have a lot less people dead today or infected today, which I think is pretty significant. And politically, I, I do think that there's a really good chance you'd be holding um, a, a different conference today. And I love counterfactuals. The problem, the only problem we're challenged with this one is that that's just not Donald Trump, right? Like any other politician would have done Bob Chris Trump exactly what you said it wasn't like rocket science but he's not capable of doing it for whatever reason i mean let you know other people can analyze why but if he had done it i think he'd have a really good chance of winning and, and it's a weird way i don't mean to sound crass about a pandemic that's killed two hundred forty thousand people that was his way to win this election against joe biden if he had proven himself in charge and able to deal with this crisis the way other presidents in crisis situations have done over the over the centuries. Stephanie or Cristobal, you want to come in? Yeah, no, I disagree. I think Adam's right. I mean, the, the counterfactual is a, a tough one because, it, you know, it, 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 it describes things that he doesn't have, like courage and leadership and competence. And so it's it's hard to make that call. You know, I think if he'd, someone had advised him to do that, they probably would have been fired. But it would have been the correct advice. You now, think Bobby's capable as someone who's observed him for all these years, is he capable of that, the, the discipline that that required? Because I'm not sure that he is, was, is. I take that as a rhetorical question. Go ahead, Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> discipline and empathy. You know, he never once showed any empathy um, about what was happening to the families that were suffering or the businesses that were going under. And that was a big problem also. He just wasn't capable of it. There's this kind of feeling that Trump was, was a good economy and he was cruising toward re-election and then COVID undid him, took him out of his game. There is everything to support that with evidence. All right? <laughs> if you just go look at the, look at the, the polling average, I know the polls are b- b- not the most favorable thing now, but you can compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. He was done the whole time. Once the Democratic Party decided that it did not want to commit suicide, I think to some extent that sealed his fate. It's just something, it's something that's just in your, your, your DNA. It's something that's just in your, your personality, your makeup. And that, is, that would be impossible for him to do. He just, I, 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 I would be interested if I could disagree with that, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, it, 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 just, it just can't happen. It's just, it's just cultural, just who he is. That's, it, no more than Joe Biden could be cruel to someone. He's just not going to do it. He just, he just, he can't. He never has and he never will be. James, a while ago you were, as you said, mildly critical of Biden. So let me pose this question. I'm going to start with Cristobal. Is there anything the Biden campaign could and should have done differently? And specifically, Cristobal, what happened with Latino voters? You know, look at the electoral votes. Um, We won the election, again, because of who Joe Biden is and because of a strong campaign. But most importantly, because of the coalition that delivered all of these electoral votes. And that's a deep coalition. Um, It ranges from white working class voters, where we were making strong uh, improvements and inroads uh, based on prior cycles. It means doing very well with women, uh, African-Americans, African-American men, uh, Latinos, uh, which I'll, I'll drill down to in a minute. And of course, you know, AAPI, Native Americans. I mean, this is a uh, unions. This was a very strong and powerful coalition that built upon uh, the Obama-Biden coalition of 2008 and 2012. And we 
pegged as a goal for the campaign on the Latino piece to hit uh, the high watermark for Latino numbers, which was 71 percent uh, in 2012 in the Obama Biden reelect. We got close to it. Uh, the numbers are still getting crunched, but we are at 70 percent. So that is uh, a pretty uh, astounding number uh, in terms of the Latino vote for Joe Biden. And uh, we're very proud of that fact. And we made a decision early on um, in the campaign, going back to the primary, to to do things a little bit differently in the way we were engaging the Latino community. It's such a fast-growing community, as you all know, especially in California. You know this better than just about anywhere, where this is a strong, fast-growing community that hadn't yet uh, developed its full political muscle. And we started to see that more and more in 18. We knew we were going to see a uh, good turnout and we had to do a few things um, a little bit differently, which uh, really boils down to some very smart micro-targeting approaches. So when we we're talking to voters uh, in Maricopa, uh, Arizona voters, we're, we're, we're using a very different approach than voters we're talking to in Orlando or Puerto Rican voters, you know, uh, in Philadelphia. Um, and in Latino voters, for example, in Wisconsin. I'm very proud of, of, of what we just pulled off in Wisconsin. People automatically assume when we're talking about Latino votes that we're talking about Arizona, Texas, and Florida. But we were uh, running deep program uh, across many battleground states. And if you look at the Wisconsin numbers at the end of the day, you're talking over 100,000 Latino voters, a significant increase that, that far exceeded the margin of victory. And those are among our very highest percentage vote for uh, President-elect Biden. We're looking at about 80% almost. Uh, and that's really astounding. And so uh, we're proud of that work, very targeted. Um, and, and, and because of the leadership uh, from the vice president to our um, campaign manager, General Melly Dillon, who just did an amazing job, uh, really making some historic investments into the community, over $100 million, in fact, to really make sure that we're doing that. Now, we've got uh, clearly uh, more work to do. And the, the thing I've always said long before this presidential campaign is we need to start thinking of Latino voters almost like white swing voters, uh, where there, there's going to be a wide variation among voters. I mean, in my own family, you know, my mom was, uh, came as a migrant farm worker. She's one of 10 kids. And there are two in our family of, of the sisters who are, who, are, who are Republican voters. I got my crazy aunt Maria over here in Fort Worth and a few other places. But, but that's how, you know, these big families are. We just have to know that we've got to use different messaging. And really, from the beginning, the last thing I'll say about this is, uh, in addition to this micro-targeted approach that we invested a lot of resources into and time into, is we made sure that we were always doing persuasion. Um, and a lot of campaigns, I think, focus on turnout toward the end. Months before Stephanie's awesome convention, we were doing millions of dollars of persuasion. And guess what? We were doing persuasion the weekend going into the election. That never stopped. In 2018, Republicans Trump kept hitting the issue of immigration. Remember the caravans, right? And one of the things that was interesting about this election is it never, ever came up. And whether that was a deliberate strategic decision on the part of Trump, should Biden have pushed him more on that issue? And might that have made a difference? Again, with the, I completely agree with you, there's a very diverse community with different political interests. But might that might have made a difference in what I think most Democrats would say was in fact a pretty disappointing show for the Biden campaign among Latino voters this time compared to 2018, at least? Well, you know, again, I think 2018 is a, uh, a unique year and a uni unique circumstance. And if you look at 2018 in a lot of heavily Latino areas, you, you saw in some places a 100% plus increase in turnout um, from, the, from the prior midterm election. So 2018 is this 
a very unique year. And we built uh, on those numbers. I would uh, now that we've now that you see Arizona is called. Let's look at the Arizona numbers. I think we've improved on the Latino numbers in a state like Arizona over 2018, which is a high water mark for Latino voters there and a number of other places. In some places, you know, we've got to do more work. And your point is well taken. I think I was surprised to see that. I I had um, expected and we were ready for those sorts of, you know, caravan type attacks that we saw in 18 that backfired on, quite frankly. Uh, we didn't see that sort of attack. We saw different sort, different types of attacks on Latinos and immigrants, but not focused uh, on that message necessarily. And you also saw at the very end there some uh, efforts by Trump and his campaign to reach out uh, in some desperate fashion to Puerto Rican voters at the very end to finally uh, release money to, to, to Puerto Rico post-Hurricane Maria that was already passed and owed to them, uh, obviously too little too late and a, uh, really an insult to, the, to those 3,000 plus that lost their lives after Hurricane Maria. But you saw them doing everything they could to to rescue the Latino vote in Florida and in other places. And so that's probably part of it, Adam. I bet you're right. I think they made a decision that they couldn't uh, completely demagogue the entire community in the ways that they had been previously. I want to ask, and maybe I'll start with James and then go to Stephanie. In Florida, in Miami-Dade, uh, there was an 8% margin for Biden versus a 29% margin for uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016. And Florida was lost because of that, because... They picked up votes in all the other places in Florida, flipped flip Pinellas County, did all the things that Cristobal has been talking about. So I wonder if Florida is a lost cause and that the new Democratic battlegrounds are going to shift to states like Georgia, North Carolina, and Arizona. And it may be that, for example, North Carolina is on the way to becoming what Virginia became over a period of years a fairly safe democratic state. It's not there now. It's a battleground state. But are democratic efforts going to focus more and more and more on those states? Well, uh, first of all, Bob, the minimum wage, a $15 minimum wage got 60% of the vote in Florida. Right? And the Democratic Party cannot abandon a place that we come that close as their 29 electoral votes. I'm sure it's going to go up when, when the, the new census numbers come in. Right? It, it, one of my, if, if, of course, if you go back, I have very few things that I would fault the Biden campaign with. I, I would have, we should have been down there doing events with, with, with uh, you know, African-American, Latino policemen. We, we should, you know, that, that, that we could have done. We could have, like, toured a, 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 a dry cleaner or a business person or something like that. You know, even Don Shalala lost down there. I mean, we got to say that the party did not see this coming. Now, when I was on election night, when I saw that we were going to come out of Miami Dade with a hundred thousand vote lead, but my heart's something. You, you got to give credit, and you're right. Georgia was like really significant. Arizona, the fact that we held it, something done being overall, but just making a couple of points. I was, I got like a pit in my stomach in the closing ad was the Sam Elliott ad because I love Sam Elliott. I was actually in it. Played a bit part in a movie with him. I, I love him in, a, uh, in the Gettysburg movie. I mean, just I love that. I watched that Ted Turner movie seventeen thousand times. But it, 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 we we probably could have been a little more two thousand eighteen. All right, and I, I I think in the, in the Rio Grande Valley, you know, the, the anti fracking and the anti border any ice border patrol really hurt us. I said, you know how many people in Rio Grande Valley employed in 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 
extraction or how many employed by the Border Patrol or, or, or ICE or ancillary issues? A lot. A lot. So it was a really good campaign. It was, a, you know, we're going to win by over four. Trump, remember, keep your eye on Trump's number. He got 46.1 in 2016. He's going to probably end up at 46.9 or eight, just my guess looking at Wasserman's thing, with a much lower third party vote. And the uh, president Biden is going to win by, you know, somewhere around four and a half in a popular vote, which is really substantial. During six electoral votes, it is not a close election. So I don't want to be nitpicking here, but I do think going forward, when we look back on it, that there's some things that we probably could have done better. There always is in every campaign. Uh, and, we, and I think that the Biden campaign did many, many things right. The, the sheer genius they had is they understood the Democratic Party. They understood that the Democratic Party was largely constituted African-Americans and increasingly important suburban females. And they understood that where others, and I, I, I bought myself a little bit here, didn't quite see it as clearly as, as Joe Biden did. He made one magnificent strategic decision. It might be the best overall strategic decision that anybody's made in modern American politics. Stephanie, do you think the playing field is, is going to change and broaden now, now that, we've, that the Democrats have carried Arizona, carried Georgia, almost carried North Carolina? I definitely think it's going to broaden. I would not write off Florida um, for Democrats in the future. I mean, Obama won it. Um, and that was not that long ago. Um, and I agree with James that, you know, there, you know, if I had to nitpick and it's really nitpicking, uh, there was, you know, lots of warning signs about the Latino community of which is not monolithic, uh, in Florida, that there were issues there. And I think maybe more could have been done, but, you know, I also totally recognize that I'm saying that from the cheap seats. Um, And I wasn't in there. But in terms of other expansion states, Arizona has been uh, migrating our way for a long time. So is Georgia. We have won them this time for the first time in a very long time. I think until we see what happens uh, in subsequent years, will we see how they really are going to act? You know, if you remember, Obama won North Carolina in 08, and we haven't won it since. It's, we always think we're going to. We always heavily invest there, but we never pull it out. Are those states going to act uh, like North Carolina? You know, I do think their demographics are changing at a faster rate. Maricopa County is the fastest growing county in the country uh, in Arizona. Um, but until we get past this election, we will always play there, put it that way. Will we always win? It's too soon to tell. We've got a lot more work to do. Same thing with Texas. You know, we knew early on that we... Uh, we wanted to compete there, but we knew pretty early on that we probably were not going to win. Um, but that doesn't mean we're not going to stop trying to put investments on the ground and building in, building infrastructure of which, you know, just eight years ago, there was none. Anybody else have anything on this? Otherwise, I'm going to move yeah, just on. Just point out the obvious, but, but for those of us in California, this is once the swing state. I mean, I remember Carl Rove, I think he was, I think he was exaggerating or spinning but saying that he thought California was in play in 2004, which I don't think it was. But th- for a long time, it was in play. So the country changes, the world changes, and the smart party learns to adjust its map to adjust the way the country's changing. And I think David Plouffe, as the Obama campaign chairman, 
was to strategist was right in trying to go after Indiana, North Carolina in 2008, as he was right in taking a shot before giving up in 2012 in Arizona. And look where the Democratic Party is today on Arizona. Okay. Florida, I think Democrats would be nuts to walk away from it. But boy, it is a, a for that party, it's a real heartbreak state, isn't it? So in about 10 minutes or so, we're going to move on to audience questions. But I want to flip this a little and turn to Donald Trump. A lot of the commentators thought and said that he had no strategy, that he was just throwing spaghetti up against the wall. I'm not sure that's true. What do you think the Trump strategy was? Who'd like to start with that? I think it was he's always had a base strategy, right? Uh, Always. He never tried to reach out beyond his base at all. But what he did in 2016, and again with some success in Pennsylvania, um, is to target voters who are like-minded, in other words, voters who should be part of his demographic um, and, and who, were not, who didn't vote in 2016 and got them to turn out. I, I still think, Bob, Bob, we've spoken about this over the years, I still think that a base strategy is not going to, you know, in, in this environment, is not going to win him an election, and that clearly was the case this time. But that, to me, was the strategy. James, did you sense a strategy? Yeah, his, he, he just knows that he can't give up on his base. So every time that he gets an opportunity to, again, I go back to he's going to get the same vote by and large this time that he got last time. I, I believe this, and a person that, who knows him as well as anybody agrees with this. Everything he's doing now is to try to stay out of penitentiary. I, I really believe that. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying this to be provocative. I'm not saying this to be like James Carville. Let's throw something crazy out and have people react to it. They're talking about having these huge demonstrations Saturday in Washington. The truckers are talking about 62,000 of them having a trucker strike. And I think what he's going to go, his lawyers will go to Biden's people and say, you get Cyrus Vance and a New York AG to lay off or all hell's going to break loose. And I, 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 think, I think that's exactly where this is. And I have to say that that would be a tempting proposal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's, at the, what's at the core of this is this guy, you never can forget this, is a career criminal. All right. All of his life, he's gotten away with crimes and he's now caught. And he knows it and he is trying instinctively to negotiate safe passage. I'm saying it because I believe it and other people who really know him well believe this also. Do we think any of Trump's efforts to nullify the election to somehow or the run to the courts to change the run for president, that that's going to work? No. I mean, he's like 14, he's lost 13 out of 14 cases. The only one he's won so far is to, for his uh, poll watchers to stand 12 feet, six feet rather than 12 feet. So, um, you know, there are law firms who are resigning from his cases. They're embarrassed by it. It's not going to work. The recount efforts that he has filed, he's dropped the one in Arizona. Um, he is, uh, there's a recount in Georgia. That's likely to net more votes for Biden because it's a hand recount. Um, so none of this is going to work. And, and, you know, I think that he's coming to terms with that. I also think that in large part, fighting after the election is a lot about fundraising for him too. He's fundraising into his pack that he just established because he wants to live beyond this election and maybe even run again in 2024 if he's not indicted um, or ends up in jail. Um, so 
it's it's not the the impact that it will have, Bob. Unfortunately, it, it it'll just further divide the country because his base will think that he was robbed of the election, uh, which he wasn't. You know, even um, member the Department of Homeland Security came out last night and said there is no um, no. Uh, evidence of fraud. There's no evidence of foreign interference that this was a fair election. Um, so, and I think that kind of rhetoric, as this continues to hang on out there, will only increase. Let me talk not about what James calls his crimes, but what I think could have been a mistake. Did his war on mail-in voting hurt him in places like Georgia and Nevada and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania? I think it did it did hurting people. It's like, I remember on election night, but I started to feel really good. So I went on television and said, all right, put the razor blade in the hand, back in the medicine cabinet. We're going to be fine. By that time, you know, we knew what was out and we knew we were going to win. But they, you know, it was a little bit different feeling at 10 o'clock. And I think that did, did hurt him. And, you know, he's saying to vote on election day did get his people to go vote on election day, but you got to admit it got our people to vote early. I think, by and large, that was a mistake on his part. And his vote tends to be older, and it was, I think it was a big mistake on his part. Well, you're certainly right about the, how the Republicans used to use mail-in ballots. In 1960, the networks called California for JFK. And a week later, when they'd finished counting the absentee ballots, Nixon had won it, I think, by 33,000 votes. So I think there were a lot of Republicans who were tearing their hair out about this attack on mail-in voting. Uh, what about all the giant rallies? Because one report is that what they would do is take the names of everybody who showed up at those rallies, check them against the voter file, find people who didn't habitually vote, and then go get them on election day and get them to the polls. Do you think those rallies on balance help or hurt? I think they helped. I, helped, I think they helped in rallying his base um, in the communities where he went. Uh, and the, the idea of bringing people to the rally, collecting their information, following up with them, uh, doing mobilization to get them to the polls, you know, that's, a, that's an old tactic, but a necessary tactic in these elections. We did it in 08, we did it in 12 with Obama's rallies. It was, I think it was a really important tool for him. It hurt him with some suburban voters, some swing voters, um, even some Republicans that probably were not going to be voting for him anyway. Um, in that he was flouting uh, public health advice and people were becoming sick who were coming to his rallies. Uh, but he was not going to win those votes anywhere. That die was cast. So I think it was helpful. And Cristobal, we couldn't do anything like that. That was not going to happen. That was not going to happen. Um, I will say, though, that the, uh, not only was the, the Trump strategy probably a mistake uh, to, to avoid the early vote and the mail vote, but you know, by the time Election Day rolled around, more than 93 million Americans had voted. Um, and our strategy was to, to get those in the bank at the earliest possible time. And it was also a strategic decision on, on budgeting, right? Uh, as we were raising uh, resources, uh, and thank you to the supporters from around the country that helped us raise record resources for this, uh, this epic fight. But we were uh, quickly putting that right back out there. It wasn't sitting in the bank somewhere because we were working very hard to get these uh, votes as early as we possibly could. And what that allowed us to do uh, toward the end, uh, as folks had voted, is to, is to, is to go uh, uh, after vote, votes that, that, that hadn't been cast yet. And so um, I think it was, uh, it was the right thing to do. It was a safe thing to do. And Joe Biden has always said, uh, you know, we've had 
elections uh, and crises before. We, we, we had a, an election um, in, in world wars, 1918 pandemic, the civil war, uh, and we've done it as a country and, and, and we did it again. And you saw uh, with record numbers uh, uh, of votes cast, it's like we were able to do it. Um, and, and, and Joe Biden, because of who he is and, and because of our coalition, won the election. I'm going to start turning to questions here. Uh, and our first question, I think we talked about uh, some, but I'll ask it. It's from Jonathan Goldman. What explains Biden's lack of coattails? The election seems to have been a referendum on Trump's personality, but not on the set of policies, for example, that Democrats or Biden would propose. I, mean, I think that's true. The only thing, um, I guess I would resist a little bit, um, sort of faulting Biden for it, saying he didn't have coattails. I saw somebody argue that yesterday. You know, I think it's what Stephanie said. This was a referendum on Trump. People were voting him out. Biden ran a really good campaign. Um, he did a good job of distancing himself from those issues we discussed before that I think really hurt the Democratic Party down ballot. Um, so I'm not sure. I just I, I guess I'm a little I, I push back a little bit on the spinning of that question. But the uh, overall idea, that's absolutely right. The other thing I would add is that it wasn't just a, a, a referendum on Trump's personality. It was a referendum on his incompetence. I mean, we are in the middle of a pandemic and an, uh, one of the worst economic downturns we've ever seen. And he's mismanaged both pieces of that. So uh, it was also a big part of uh, his ability to do the job or better yet inability to do the job. But he did seem to win, didn't he, among voters who said the economy was the most important issue? Those were his voters who were going to vote for him anyway. And for the, for the swing that both of us are, you know, the Democrats and Republicans are always uh, targeting, uh, in addition to your base, um, he didn't win uh, on the economy. Biden actually leveled that off. They might have said that economy, economy was one of their most important issues, but then they turned around and voted for Biden. Anyone else on this? And I'll move on to question two. And I'm going to change it slightly. What effect, if any, did the Amy Coney Barrett nomination to the Supreme Court have, followed by the discussions about expanding the court, uh, either at the top of the ticket or down ballot? Before the election, there was a lot of talk of um, the Supreme Court and the imbalance of it as being something that would rally our base. I think it's difficult to say now, and I, I will admit that I haven't uh, seen that in the exit polls, but it could be there. Um, I do think the idea of expanding the court um, scared some people. Uh, and that's, you saw Joe Biden wouldn't answer that question um, for a very good reason. Uh, because people, I think James said this earlier, it might have been uh, Adam, people weren't looking for radical change. They were looking for normalcy. They wanted to get back to whatever they defined as normal. Uh, in this election. And whether it's expanding the Supreme Court or, you know, a public health care system or a Green New Deal that uh, or defunding the police, that was that was too far for many of these voters. So I do think that had an impact. So Barbara, you and I, we're, we're, we're big students of, of church history. And literally everything bad in the American Catholic Church has started in Louisiana. The first of the pedophile cases, this Gilbert Ghost, and the people have praised that Amy Connie Barrett went to Dominican High School, which is like a mile from where my daughter graduated from Sacred Heart High School in, in New Orleans. 
That start was started by actually a guy named Father Cohen at Loyola, in, which is a block and a half from my house. And she is like really, really, and I'm familiar with it, and she was very, she's very smart, she's very educated. This person is really, really, really conservative in, in ways that, that are hard to imagine. And that, that, you know, people can make their choices in life, and I'm criticize that, but you watch out. Because whatever you think, however, however conservative you think she is, you don't have any idea. I don't know at the end of the day what impact it had in terms of raw votes. I will say that, you know, for a lot of voters, I think it really, folks were, were going to vote, and it really refocused their minds on what's at stake in the election. I mean, certainly COVID was top of mind. Uh, it's been decimating our, our nation. But um, it also meant that healthcare is on the ballot. It also meant that dreamers are on the ballot uh, and so many other you know, key issues that go to the values of who we are as a nation. And I think, you know, if anything, it, it, it reminded folks, again, of what's at stake in the election and, and, and ensured that they were going to get out there and vote. And I think, you know, I don't know, again, what the, what the, what the change was in, in raw votes, but it was a, a clear and stark reminder of, of what else was on the ballot. You know, there's a long history. You know, the night that Justice Ginsburg passed, you know, my initial conventional wisdom response was, oh, this is going to help Republicans get base voters out to the polls. No, that, that wasn't right. And I think it became clearer for what you were saying, first of all, which is that, like, I think this got a lot of Democrats out to the, vote, out to the polls because for the first time they began to realize, yes, Supreme Court does matter, matter for things like abortion rights was the first thing I thought of, but also the right health care. So I think it did make a difference um, in just turning voters out. But I also think for what Stephanie Cutter said, I, I think packing the court just sort of was part of the package of issues that Democrats on the left were talking about and that Biden was resisting, but that contributed to the party's poor showing in congressional, Senate, and state house races. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next question from Ken Brode, and I've heard him say something like this before. He says, I don't see Democrats recognizing that Trump is a symptom, not the disease. As James noted, the liberal elite are all, quote, hold up, unquote, in the same places. When will the coastal clerisy recognize and respect the fact that most of America lives very differently? Isn't the bigger divide not race, but class? Well, I guess it brought my name up. If, 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 I guess have, I'm just going to beat my head against the wall so many times and I'm going to have concussion before it's over. <laughs> you know, and I'm a liberal. I'm not a left. Okay, let's, let, let, let's get up. And there's nothing wrong with, with, with that. But every time we chase them, and this whole cancel culture, who thinks of this stuff? Where do people come up with this? I, I, I have no idea. And to some extent, we continually walk into the same trap. And, you know, once you do the math, and, you know, you, you, you see how you, you, you've got to win the Senate. And you get 18% of the country. And, and, and there's a way, you know, when they talk about the, the, one of the reasons I hate is the white working class. Well, black people work. Brown people work. Asian people work. Iranian people work. You know, I mean, everybody does. And, and 
the, the more universal our themes and, and people in this country is, you know, going to go back to 60% of the people in Florida voted for a $15 minimum wage, right? There is a appetite in this country all across it for the application of smart government intervention to improve people's lives. And I think Joe Biden understands that. But every time something flashy comes up, we're off chasing it. And, I, 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 you know, 2018 to me was the Democratic messaging, the Democratic recruitment was perfect. And I think we got thrown a little bit out of it by understandable events, but I do think we got a little bit thrown out of it. And, of course, when you, you, you say that, you know, I got to say this, and I'll say it perfectly. Tyranny is tyranny. If it comes from the right or it comes from the left, it's still tyranny. And people don't like tyranny. Can we talk about why, this is from Andy, why Trump did so well? He may not have won, but how did he make the gains he did despite fumbling the pandemic, among other derelictions of duty? I think that goes to the expectations that many on the left had going into this race. I mean, Trump drew more votes for the reasons we talked about, including, again, in my opinion, the way he ended up dealing with COVID and his strategic decision on going after like-minded voters who hadn't voted before. But I don't want to lose sight of one thing here, the way this election is remembered. And I think, Bob, you mentioned this at the beginning. It looks like he's going to win by 5 million votes. He got more votes than any presidential candidate in our history. It looks like he's going to get three or four electoral votes. I think that's right. He's taken Arizona away from the Republicans. It looks like he's taken Georgia away from the Republicans. He got back the blue wall. And in the case of Pennsylvania, in a decent margin, in the case of, I guess, Wisconsin, was that 160? I mean, he did it convincingly. So I, I'm a little pushing back on the narrative like this was a super close election, the presidential election. Well, you know, it wasn't. So but, you know, I, there's a lot of support for Trump out there. And I think, you know, I do think there is... People, some people just don't get it, never did get it, maybe don't understand it the way they should. But let's, I would not overstate how well Trump did or how well, understate how well Biden did. That's just my own opinion. Adam and I have been fighting about crap for the last 20 years. I agree with you, Adam. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, I, one time I agree with you. Okay, yeah. we've been screaming at each other on the phone forever, but I do agree with your analysis. I just there you go. <laughs> we can end this conference right now. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, I, I agree with you too, man. I, I just think this was an incumbent president, and they're they're hard to beat. And what we saw here yeah. was like you like you pointed out. I mean, you know, we flipped four states, record turnout. I mean, this was a high turnout election, yes, but uh, that that record turnout um, you know benefited Joe Biden, who, who who rebuilt that blue wall and and who is pushed. And we were um, you know focused on this for some time, making sure that there were as many pathways to 270 as possible. And it goes back to the earlier question about Florida and other states. But, but when you have a candidate uh, like Joe Biden and a coalition like this, it allows you to push. And we had him on the front that he was on the defensive the entire time. I mean, I didn't expect the weekend before the election to be campaigning, uh, you know, in Texas. Um, and, and that just, again, shows that things were tightening across the map and we were in places that uh, were very unexpected, and, and, and I think over time we'll continue to be closer and closer. And eventually we are going to you know, flip my home state of Texas. It's going to take a little more time, but it's going to happen. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I like your attitude, man. I like your attitude. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the next question, and I'm going to amend it slightly, and it previews uh, a later panel, but I want to ask it here, uh, from Alex Michelson. Is there any hope Democrats can win those Senate seats in Georgia, and James has done winning campaigns in Georgia, I was involved in one of them with him, and if they don't and Republicans retain the Senate, is there any strategy for Democrats to get things done? I'm desperately waiting on my cell phone to get the the latest Georgia numbers, and they hadn't been texted to me. But it's going to be the question is this: Will the he drew people out? Will they come out without him on the ballot for him? He also drew our people out. Will they come out without him on the ballot? I mean, it's 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 a it's a yin and yang thing. The preliminary I, I talked to people in Georgia. I don't know, 10 times a day. We have some room for growth. Actually, some people think that the, the black share was 27 and a half, which is, which we, we could, if we could get it and run off to 29 and a half. You got to remember this. Metropolitan Atlanta is much more like metropolitan Los Angeles or Toronto than it is like metropolitan Indianapolis or, or, or anything like that. It's probably not even 50%, you know, self-described white. So we're going to, we have some, 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 some work to do to get the numbers relative to the total up. I have no idea. It, it, conventional wisdom is it's going to be difficult. Uh, you know, I like to go against conventional wisdom. I don't know if it's necessarily wrong or necessarily right. And if, if they can run against Lafla and Purdue if, for what they are, is just a plutocrats. Uh, you know, Lockla uh, gave Hillary money in 2016. She hired Stacey Abrams. I, I mean, she could probably be the most duplicitous human being on the face of the earth. And if, if the Democrats are smart and can suppress that vote, you know, like Northwest Georgia, places like that, and we made some gains. In, in literally every county in Georgia, Biden ran a little bit ahead of where Stacy ran in 2018. I'm not talking about a lot, but you know, when you want a state by 13,000 votes, 1%, <laughs> you cut a margin, you know, in a state where I think it's 159 counties, you cut margin by 200 votes. At average, you, you cut a lot. And we got to realize this, this thing is going to be, if we're able to win it, it's got to be won by enhancing the turnout. 15% of people who vote in Georgia do not describe themselves as white or black. They describe themselves as up. And, you know, that, that's a key vote for us. But I, I, I'm, too, I'm too enmeshed in knowledge in Georgia. I apologize. I'm getting too technical here. <laughs> and what happens if Mitch McConnell's in control of the Senate? I guess that answers the question. <laughs> Nobody knows where this will go because no, I don't I think anybody... He's going to, look, it's not like he's not going to need stuff, and it's not like the president's not going to need stuff. Yes, he, 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 I would give anything if we win these two seats in Georgia, and I think that ought to be our focus. I hope we win them, but as they say in the Marine Corps, hope in one hand and poop in the other hand, see what it fills up the fastest. But I, I'm going to hope through January. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, the question here is, when Obama became president, McConnell was very, very direct in saying what his strategy was, was, was to do everything he could to make sure that he was a one-term president. And he was stunningly direct in saying publicly 
that he wasn't going to pass a thing a single thing that would give Obama a record to run on. Now the question for me is, will he think it's in his interest and in his Congress's interest to do the same thing again um, in this country, which is even more polarized than it was in 2008? I guess we really don't know. Um, we just don't know. So, but that, that to me is the main question. I would watch him. Adam, look at, the, look at the 2022 Senate map. Mitch has a crap map in 2022, and he, he, he's going to be constrained because he's got seats in states like Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. Wisconsin, you know, even Iowa. There's even more than that. He, he, he's not having free reign like he had 2008 going okay. into 2010. That's a, that's a great point, James. He's yeah. got a really crappy Senate map coming up. And believe you me, that son of a bitch knows it. He knows every member that is up in what state. They, they have to be a little careful. And, you know, Joe Biden has some experience, and he knows a little something. And it's not he, – he, he can make Mitch Howe. He can. It, it, he's not no, I, I believe that. I, that's why I think we should be wary. It's like I think Stephanie said at the beginning of this call. It's like you want to learn from history, but don't get trapped by it, right? And I think we want to be wary in, what, in predicting what McConnell might do. We can look at what he did in 2008. And, and ever since. But you're right, James. That's exactly right. He's got different dynamics now, and doing huh. that same strategy might not work. So that's a really smart point. He, he, he's got issues to deal with, too. So I have a last question, which I think goes to the heart of the election in some ways, and we haven't talked about. Joe Biden certainly owes his nomination to African Americans, and he certainly owes a large part of his victory to the fact that he overwhelmingly carried black voters. How is he going to deal with the issue of the police, reparations, voting rights, all of the hot-button issues, some of which, James, you were suggesting drive people away? By and large, if, if, if the calls I get from African-American or black members of Congress are any way reflective of it, I think they are, is everybody is interested in, in reforming the police. There is very little interest in, in abolishing abolishing the police. But you're right, they, they made him, and it's the most important constituency in a Democratic Party. And But they, the challenges that, that black people face, are by and large, the challenges that a lot of people face, I mean, they live in economy, they live in high health care costs, you know, that, that there are many ways that he, he'll be able to do this. In terms of, I, I'm so far baby bonds, I can't, I think it's the best idea I've ever heard. And I think that deals in, in some way deals with reparations in, in a very equitable and fair way. This is Cory Booker's idea that depending on the, the, the circumstance of your parents, you, you start when you turn 18, you have like fifty, sixty thousand dollars in the bank. And because you got a bond when you were yeah, born. Yeah. And, it, and I think, and, so I think Joe Biden and, and, and Congressman Clyburn said, you know, we understand him, but more importantly, he understands us. And I, I think by and large, large, large percent of the black community in the United States knows Joe Biden and, and they think that he will act, you know, not 100 percent in their interest, but will act by and large most of the time in the interest of, of, of people who are challenged everywhere, whatever they, they be, be, be they black or, or, or Latinx or, or, or anything else. Anybody that has a, a challenged life, I think they're going to have a friend in, in Joe Biden in the president's office. And I think that's a very meaningful thing to people. I, I, I really do. I have to wind this up. 
I'm very grateful to all of you. I wish we could have done this in person. We're doing it on Zoom. Thank you, Cristobal Alex, James Carvel, who was inimitably himself, Stephanie Cutter, and Adam Nagurney, who actually got James to agree with him. So thank you it's all. Because I'm right. <laughs> I don't like agreeing with Adam. I like to fight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Appreciate thank it. you. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture, Facebook, and YouTube. And visit our website for upcoming programs.